clients, colleagues, and friends of the firm. Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's Uniquely Rockefeller special client event. Today's event is the 39th in our series and will be a conversation between Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO Greg Fleming and Chief Executive Officer of Brookfield Asset Management, Bruce Flatt. If you're unable to be with us for the entirety of today's presentation, a replay will be made available shortly after we conclude through our website, rcm.rocco.com, and through the Rockefeller Client Insights podcast series, which can be found wherever you get your podcasts. And with that, as always, it's my pleasure to introduce Rockefeller Capital Management President and CEO, Greg Fleming. Thank you, Tom. And good morning to clients of Rockefeller Capital Management, our colleagues here at Rockefeller, and other friends of Rockefeller uh, for, as uh, Tom said, our 39th in the client series that we began over two years ago now at the start of the pandemic. I'm quite pleased with our guest today, uh, who is uh, uh, one of the most successful uh, investors uh, and company builders uh, in recent time, Bruce Flatt, the Chief Executive Officer of Brookfield. Uh, Bruce has uh, been the CEO of Brookfield Asset Management since 2002. Uh, his bio is short and to the point. Under his leadership, uh, Brookfield has developed a global operating presence in more than 30 countries. They manage approximately 700 billion in ass assets under management around the world, uh, maybe north of that now. Um, Bruce has been with Brookfield since 1990. We're gonna talk a little bit about the, uh, the history of Brookfield and predecessor companies uh, with Bruce here at the outset. Uh, I did uh, uh, have uh, somebody on my team, uh, thank you, Sharaz Shetty, for calculating uh, uh, some measures that are near and dear to uh, the journey of Bruce Flatt and what he's done for this incredible company. Share price performance and earnings growth. Since Bruce became CEO uh, at the beginning of 2002, the share price of Brookfield Asset Management has increased by 1,498%. If you add dividends into that, it's 2,286% return. Net income since 2002 is up 4,331%. Uh, those are the things that uh, are not on the resume, uh, but everybody knows about Bruce Flat and Brookfield at this point in time. So Bruce, it's terrific to have you with us today. Uh, thanks for, for joining. Greg, thanks for having me. Thrilled to be here. It's great. Well, Bruce, I did promise, uh, uh, and, and uh, we have a mutual uh, friend who, who uh, we both worked with for a long time, Mark Patterson, one of our colleagues here at Rockefeller. I did uh, promise uh, our listeners that um, we do we start with a little of your background, and Mark says you typically get right to the business side, so uh, people don't hear this often. So can we start with um, uh, a little bit on where you grew up and, and your background before uh, all of this? Uh, uh, you know, we we uh, we Rockefeller have uh, some some great friends and clients in Canada, so uh, they would uh, in particular love to hear that uh, story. But all of the listeners. So uh, my story is pretty simple. I uh, grew up in Canada in uh, in Winnipeg. Uh, moved to Toronto. Joined uh, was a CPA. Joined Brookfield uh, when I was pretty young. Ran a real estate business and then took over the entire business in 2002. Uh, and it's been uh, it's been an, an incredible journey uh, over that time um, through the period. So. 
And Bruce, when did the vision, I mean, Brookfield today is 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 renowned uh, as one of the world's leading, you know, alternative investment managers anywhere. When did that vision start to come together? Because it was a different entity when you joined and even when you took over as CEO. So, uh, you know, this this uh, this building this into into the the, the frankly uh, investment uh, colossus that it is today. Did you have that in mind when you started? Uh, were you thinking I'm just going to build out asset classes and, and and grow this, or how did it all come together? So look, we uh, we took we started. Uh, it's not better or worse. We just started differently than most of the other uh, investment managers that are out there. And uh, our business started as a conglomerate. Um, you know, I would refer to it as a mini. Uh, Berkshire Hathaway. We had vast numbers of businesses, and we spent the first ten years selling off businesses we didn't like and pouring the capital into our our renewables business, which uh, at the time was mostly hydro business, uh, infrastructure assets and real estate and um, and continued to build it out. And then 20 years ago, 25 years ago, we um, we came upon looked at all the different investment managers out there that were in in a nascent stage in starting and decided that we could take the industries that we were uh, invested in and we could raise capital for them and they were they would be perfect assets for institutional clients. And um, so it started small and we built a business from that. And I, I guess I would say incrementally over the years, we added things that we were comfortable investing in ourselves. And, and the difference, again, not better or worse, but the difference is uh, our business was about having our own capital and where do we want to deploy it and then creating products for clients to invest beside us. So um, continuing today, every single fund, we have a very large commitment to all the funds we create with our clients. And uh, it goes back to really the fact that we think of it as where do we want to invest our money? What are the best things to put our capital to work at? And, and today we just do that with our clients. Um, as a side side. So the first number of funds were 100% our money and today they're 25 or 30% uh, from our balance sheet. What a fantastic uh, alignment of interest. Uh, and, and I think uh, a, a lot in that uh, that explains the, the tremendous success, the relentless focus you have starting with the, uh, you know, the, the principal dollars and then adding the clients alongside that. Uh, uh, everybody's exactly on the same page and you have a lot of happy clients both in the stock and in the funds as a result of that. Now Bruce I wanted to uh, just a little bit more memory lane before we jump in uh, because you and I have a long history as we were catching up on all the way back I think to the late 1990s. Brookfield was our landlord uh, at Merrill Lynch at 250 VZ Street for many years. Um, right through the time and after the time we sold uh, Merrill Lynch to Bank America um, and uh, I think you've got one tenant now on on 12 floors that uh, is on the trading floors of uh, of Merrill Lynch from that time. So a lot of memories for me in the 17 years down there. Uh, how did you originally come to own those buildings? So uh, again, the uh, as we travel through our history, uh, it, it's uh, there are quite a bunch of interwoven things. But uh, in the early 90s, we uh, got involved in the bankruptcy of Olympia, New York. We uh, had a bunch of debt 
we converted it into the equity of uh, what was then called Olympia New York, and we ended up with uh, a number of major office buildings in New York City um, through the real estate crisis in the early 90s. And that really gave us our start in the real estate business uh, in the United States. And I, I uh, moved to New York then and, and, uh, and ran the business at that time. Um, and those buildings, we in fact still own today. So um, the corporation, uh, the parent company, we own those buildings today. We've uh, had them in various iterations for almost 30 years. And, and it goes to, I, I would use that to go to our um, thesis of investing. And, and Greg, look, our thesis of investing has always been um, compounding of wealth is about buying great, great businesses or great assets in great places and sticking with it. And um, for, for example, these buildings, we, um, we were bombed in 9-11. Um, we've been through many recessions, but uh, we kept going and we've relet the tendencies in them, but uh, they've been an incredible investment for almost 30 years that we've been involved here. That's a fantastic story, because as you said, it does um, reflect the underlying investment thesis and, and the long-term ownership, uh, ironically or not ironically, but when 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 we were bombed in, during, uh, you know, after September 11th, uh, as you know, we couldn't use the buildings for several months. Uh, the group I was running at the time, I moved into some extra space at BlackRock in Midtown that Larry Fink lent me. Uh, so, uh, you know, the, the, the number of uh, things that come full circle here over the years. One more, um, uh, Bruce, in terms of um, a coincidence, uh, you own some space now over on Fifth Avenue that uh, our capital partner and our friends at uh, Viking are moving into. Uh, and you've, you've uh, undergone some real positive change in that building. So uh, I think uh, if there's anybody from Viking on the on the call, they can look forward to some good space, right? We have a, uh, look, we have a vast real estate business in New York City. I think it's probably the largest. Uh, more importantly, it's the highest quality business of any real estate business in the city. The um, We have an enormous complex that we're building on the west side called Manhattan West um, with a brand new building we're just leasing up. But we also have, um, Lever House on Fifth Avenue and 665th Avenue, uh, which is where Viking is uh, uh, going into. And and uh, it, it, but to to I guess make the point of the quality of the spaces, that building was an old style building, and we've spent the last two and a half years uh, stripping all of the walls off, um, redoing the elevators, um, taking columns out, putting brand new glass in, and it's going to be an incredible. Uh, office building in an, an amazing location on uh, on Fifth Avenue, and uh, and right now, um, uh, unlike what you would read in the press, uh, high quality spaces with high quality companies are highly sought after, and rents are uh, increasing. In fact, rents are probably thirty percent higher for those type of spaces than they were um, pre-pandemic. So uh, there's a there's a very large flight to quality going on, and uh, and space is getting taken up quickly, and rents are going higher. So uh, your your Viking partners got probably got a good deal. Uh, it'll Excellent. be more expensive. So it'll be more expensive soon. Excellent. I'm happy for them. Uh, they're good partners. Uh, Bruce, why don't we stay with that for a second? Uh, because there's so much focus on this, and uh, you know I, I I do want to talk about. It. I don't want to uh, overdo it. There's so much to talk to you about. But this gets to uh, back to work, 
commercial uh, space in in cities like New York. Um, what is your view on that? And you know, we're, we're you know, I don't know. We're in early to mid innings uh, with uh, human beings adjusting and companies adjusting. So how is that unfolding? Because frankly, I, I I'm surprised uh, uh, based upon what you read to hear that uh, that it's up that much. I'm not surprised that a great building uh, run and owned and run by you all is uh, is up. But how is it how is it uh, unfolding? And, and more importantly, what do you see as the future of commercial real estate and and also the whole back to work? Uh, phenomenon in uh, in urban areas. Look, Greg, the the largest um, business in the world is real estate. Most people don't think of it that way, but everyone owns a house, or lives in a house, or rents a house. Uh, everyone works out of an office, or or goes to an office, or or shops somewhere. The real estate business is an enormous business. It ebbs and flows, and I can tell you in New York City, and I've been involved here for 30 years uh, in the real estate business, um, the tenants sometimes change and the emphasis of tenants, financial services for a long, long time was a major user of space in the city. It still is, but technology continues to take space. And the reason is because people want to be in these great cities and they need to be housed in proper places and um, there are very few companies today that are deciding they're going to be 100% online or going to work out of their houses because the culture you create in a business is about people being together. And in particular, it's the young people within businesses that get the benefit out of being in offices. And, uh, and if the senior people aren't there, the whole, uh, everything falls apart. So I, what I can tell you is we, we have 200 million square feet of space around the world in most major cities. Um, all of the companies are continuing to um, uh, bring people back, have every intention to. And, and what I would say is it might be they're a little different and that's why quality buildings are filling up today, but they want to have um, more open space, uh, more space for people a better environment, high quality air systems, and all the things that come along with great buildings. And that's really the, um, I'd say the change has been the configuration of what you do in your space. Um, and if people are out of the office um, more or working from home sometime, um, they, they wanna have more hot desking, more meeting rooms, more space for people to, um, uh, be together and uh, and that's really what's going on but I, I would just say it's the change um, is constant and residential real estate in these cities are um, are very uh, uh, strong right now uh, as people come back to the cities well you know uh, I have to say from our vantage point in the in the companies that I know but I can tell you at Rockefeller we, we've got a critical mass in uh, on a consistent basis for the same reason you just described. It's a better way for us to create better ideas for our clients, to see our clients, to have uh, more junior and younger staff work with senior staff on a regular basis. So that's still going to be there, as you say, on a consistent basis. So uh, I think um, our personal experience is, is consistent with what you're describing. Uh, and these cit cities will remain magnets for, uh, you know, many different people who want to be part of, uh, you know what what New York can offer. Now, one aspect of that, though, Bruce, that that uh, I also know your your team's involved in, 
is uh, you know the the safety and uh, of of the cities and and some of the the you know the issues around that, which is critical for people feeling comfortable. So you you and your team uh, uh, have worked with uh, Mayor Adams since he was in Brooklyn. Um, uh, how do you feel things are coming in New York, and uh, you know I, uh, I, you're optimistic around what Mayor Adams is doing and the ability to kind of fix some of the safety issues that that uh, exist today? Look, I think he'll uh, he's very focused on the issue, and I think he'll do a very good job in um, in cleaning up the things that need to get cleaned up. The most important thing, though, is that uh, this environment. Uh, came about because the people were just not in the city. And uh, as people come back to the city, um, that just helps. And uh, so as you um, as you bring people back to the city and and uh, and all everything gets filled back up again, uh, the 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 situation to some degree self corrects itself. But um, the discipline of the uh, authorities uh, is very important. And I think they're they're um, they're on it to be able to fix the situation. Yeah, uh, agreed and and, uh, and terrific that your team's working with them. Uh, Bruce, let's go to uh, uh, to global macro because you have so much reach. Uh, as I said before, 700 billion in uh, assets across uh, many different asset classes around the world. Um, can we start with uh, the topic that uh, markets have been reacting to most recently? That everybody's talking about, which is uh, inflation um, and the debate around cyclical versus secular, and uh, you know the Federal Reserve being behind the curve, and uh, markets nervous that they're going to have to push it to the point where we go into a recession. Just your views on on, on that set of topics and what you're seeing again, based upon all the different uh, uh, places that you all are operating. So first, I'm going to state my bias. Uh, we own. Um, predominantly uh, backbone global infrastructure in the form of uh, real estate, power plants, electricity transmission lines, pipelines. Um, and so it's all core backbone infrastructure. And what those, um, uh, what that means is that we buy or build assets for very high capital value. The ones we own today, um, are we put a lot of money in the ground. They uh, gen because of that capital you have in, they generally have high margins and therefore the expenses are small. So while inflation uh, affects the expenses, it's small compared to the, the, the revenues that you get off the assets. So in, in and, and generally these are called real assets or real return assets. If you want to be more specific and the reason for that is is because when there is inflation the revenues increase greater than the expenses and more drops to the bottom line and over time it compounds on itself so inflation is a very very positive thing in fact inflate uh, real assets are the place to be when you're in this type of environment especially private real assets and um, and that uh, continues to increase. So what I would tell you is we've seen um, significant inflation uh, in most countries in the world. Um, I don't we don't buy into the thesis that it is um, it can't be solved. Uh, central banks are clearly going to solve it. 
Um, the only issue is, as they solve it, does it cause recessionary or other issues within uh, country by country? And uh, I'm not smart enough to know uh, whether that will occur. But what I do know is that for um, for the type of assets that we own, generally, uh, a, a highly deflationary environment is a bad thing. A slightly inflationary environment or some inflation is a very positive thing, um, combined with obviously somewhat higher interest rates, which we're uh, we're clearly going to see. Yeah, and and it was clear. I mean, it's been clear for a while that uh, you know bef even before the pandemic, but certainly during the pandemic and after that the Federal Reserve wanted to see a slight uh, amount of inflation and worried uh, when Bernanke was uh, Fed chairman, it, the deflation was the, the the concern on a regular basis. So, um, you know, they, they, they've gotten their wish now. The, the question is, uh, you, you see, Bruce, so much in terms of tenants and, and uh, as you said, pricing of, of different real estate. Right now in the U.S., the economy is uh, continuing to perform uh, quite well, uh, really, across the landscape. Look, I, I, uh, there are cost pressures in many different places. I think some of them are caused by, um, in fact, a lot of them are caused by the, the fact that uh, supply chains just haven't been able to keep up. And, uh, you know, we shut the world down and now we're trying to restart those businesses around the world and we've seen it it's just it's just difficult you can't get people you can't get the systems back up but slowly it's coming back and and um and i would say our view of the general economy uh, uh is that it's it's pretty strong um but there's no doubt this environment that we're in right now and interest rates going up is going to slow it which is probably a very positive thing in fact what would be ideal is if we thread the needle where we don't have a recession, but we calm down inflation and um, move through. The, the only other thing, Greg, I'd add maybe just is that I think there are recessions and then there are recessions. Um, all of most of you, I'm sure on the call, have been through many recessions before. But in 2008, we almost wiped out the financial system and had to recapitalize the whole banking system across the world. That was a very dramatic thing. In the early 90s, we wiped out the whole um, real estate business uh, in the United States and in many other places in the world. Um, the Asian financial crisis um, was a problem. Right now, household balance sheets are strong. Corporate balance sheets are strong. Um, the, only, the only place where uh, there's too much debt in the world is in governments. Um, but uh, therefore, I think what you're going to see is you're going to see a shallow recession if we have one. Uh, in that environment, I'd say that's a positive. And in fact, it may even be a good thing um, yeah. to get it over with and uh, and move forward because wealth creation is about buying great things for long periods of time. And these, whether it's up or down in a short period of time, is not as relevant as, as things in the fullness of time. Yeah, uh, I think that's spot on. Uh the um, Bruce, you, you're one of the uh, asset classes that you have a significant presence in is the energy space with the particular focus on renewables. Um, there's a lot going on there as well. Maybe your thoughts on uh, on, on that space, fossil fuels, obviously uh, the all the challenges coming out of Ukraine have, have put this in the lights for everybody. Um, how on a medium term basis is that likely to continue to unfold? 
So we could spend a full hour uh, chatting about energy transition, but um, maybe I start by just saying we got lucky. Uh, we were in the we were in a bunch of industrial and um, mining businesses uh, 30 years ago, and we hated the uh, volatility of the mining businesses. But we so we sold them all. But uh, we we pulled out two asset classes out of those businesses. Um, the first was uh, a hydro business, which got us into renewables. And the second was infrastructure, because we used to build it for mining projects around the world. And, and that's what started us into the infrastructure business. And, um, but but on, the, on the hydro business, we, we bought hydro plants and built hydro plants for decades until wind became real and we started building wind uh, facilities. And in the last five years, when solar became real and we, we've been building solar, Today, we're one of the largest uh, owners, operators, and uh, builders of uh, renewables uh, in the world. Um, we source more solar panels than any other uh, group in the world um, for projects we're building uh, around the world. And it's a very exciting uh, asset class. Um, and recently, we raised a transition fund which is a $15 billion um, fund for investing into transition. And I'll spend a moment and just tell you what transition means because I think it's important. Um, it's not just about investing in green things. It's about transitioning the, the, econ the companies and the economy to less carbon intensive, intensive things. So for example, we are um, providing money to or bidding on or buying companies that own coal plants that generate electricity with the goal that over the next 10 years we will transition those entities out of coal and into more carbon free uses for power, uh, for generating power. And um, so it's about the transition, not actually about the um, being green because there are 50 shades of green and moving from from here to here is just as important as moving from here to here. Um, the, the thing that you just mentioned also that um, is become more clear in everyone's mind is that um, security of energy supply is uh, very important. And the one thing that is um, uh, increasingly acknowledged by everyone is that not only is our renewables um, carbon free, but they also, uh, you rely on no one for your fuel except the sun um, or the wind, which is in your country. So you don't have to, you're not reliant on anybody if you build um, solar and wind. And, uh, and that's becoming increasingly a really important thing. And that will, that will push more and more capital into the uh, into the renewals renewable space over the next 5, 10, 15 years. I, I want to, that's uh, uh, the uh, uh, fascinating. I want to come back to that in, in one second. I want to remind viewers because there's so much here that is relevant across our business as well. If you want to send questions in on Teams, uh, I will work them in. Uh, Bruce, we have an asset management, a set of asset management capabilities, and this comes out of the Rockefeller's focus on, um, uh, on impact investing for decades, the family. Uh, and, and in our asset management business, we've developed a, a focus on what we call improvers as opposed to leaders. 
and investing in companies exactly as you described that are getting better uh, on a sustainable basis uh, uh, on a on a on a pace where we think that will create excess return from a shareholder standpoint, as opposed to just investing in the the, the leaders. Uh, that everybody's investing in because they're already in a good spot there. So that's similar to the transition notion. And I think that's part of what's going to really push investment demand here as well. Um, but if we come back to the energy security, uh, Bruce, um, have you seen as a result of of the events, uh, you know, the, the the war and all the, the tragedy and pain in Ukraine, but have you seen from a, uh, a political and governmental standpoint, uh, people looking much more uh, seriously in more places on investing in renewables from an energy security driver standpoint? Look, I think it's still early days, but there is going to be a, there already was a very substantial push in the world to build uh, renewables. This, the impetus of security behind it will even make that push greater. So there is going to be a very, very significant push towards it. Uh, interestingly, we own, and, and uh, just for uh, everyone's benefit, we own the business called Westinghouse, which is the largest servicer. Uh, so we own the technology and we service um, uh, almost 70 uh, nuclear plants around the world. So we don't own the nuclear plants, but we, we own the technology and we have the engineers that service all these plants around the world. It's an incredible business. And the um, I'd say the impetus of what's going on around the world, there's only one other technology where you can have security of what you own. If you don't have, if you don't have native uh, uh, gas or oil, if you have native gas or oil, then you have security uh, over your energy sources. But if you don't have those, um, you have to import gas and therefore you're at risk. The, the one thing uh, that uh, you can have that, that's a baseload technology is nuclear. And, and there's gonna be a, a, a significant um, push behind nuclear, especially in Europe, um, which was going backward and now has stopped and, and I think will grow significantly over the next um, 10, 15, 20 years because of that, because it's it's baseload, it's carbon free, uh, and it also has security of supply. And that's a very significant thing that, that literally just changed in the last two months. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, so you've got nuclear and you've got renewables that will uh, experience both significant supply from the standpoint of governments pushing uh, and private sectors in those countries uh, in demand over the next 10 or 20 years, uh, both on, on a major uptick. Bruce, is that, I mean, the United States is much closer to um, the the energy independence uh, uh, because of the raw material, you know, the natural resources we have here. But do you see an impetus in the, in the U.S. for either or both of those? Uh, renewables, clearly there was already a lot, but is it is it stepping up? And then would nuclear come back here? Look, I, I it's, we have an enormous natural gas advantage in the United States. So um, I think the, uh, the, the natural gas uh, uh, will continue to be uh, flow. Uh, the LNG facilities, the, the shipping facilities to ship natural gas, it's going to be amazing business for the next 20 years um, uh, in, in uh, the U.S to be able to ship natural gas, and it's gonna be a large export business for the country. So um, that's important to the United States. I, I do think um, you will 
continue to see in the US when smaller uh, modular reactors um, come on. These are not building, and I'm, just to give you, this may not mean that much to people, but instead of building 2000 megawatt plants, these are uh, two to 300 megawatt plants. So they're smaller plants, the capital costs are more manageable. And um, when those come on, I think you'll see them um, built in the United States. We have one technology that we're trying to um, perfect at Westinghouse, um, but that will um, uh, have some use in the United States. But, but the US has a natural gas advantage, whereas Europe does not. And, uh, and that's the one big difference. Uh, it's amazing the speed, as you said, with which that's changed in Europe, uh, li literally, you know, a couple of months, almost overnight. Um, Bruce, as we look, uh, given the, the geographic reach of Brookfield and the history, as uh, Mark was pointing out in Brazil, uh, markets that you find particularly attractive uh, outside the, the U.S. and maybe some of the major developed markets, you are spending more time and in investing more in India. You have a long history in Brazil. Can you talk a little bit about uh you know, some of these major emerging markets? Look, we're uh, we're in 30 countries around the world. We've always been very international. Um, and uh, we do that because we try to be value investors in all the things we do. So we're looking, when you when you buy, ma ma make major capital investments, the greatest advantage you can have is to buy right and have your cost base at a proper price. Um, so when our capital moves around the world to the places where uh, greater opportunity is to get things at a discount for replacement cost. Um, so from time to time, um, we're investing capital into different markets based on the capital availability in those countries. What I would say uh, first off though is for the same return, we would invest every dollar we have in the United States of America. The United States is the greatest, most liquid, um, best rule of law place in the world um, and therefore every dollar goes to the United States if we can find the opportunities. But from time to time and, and which is why we have our vast network of people around the world, um, there are occasions when uh, you can make a lot of money investing in Brazil, you can make a lot of money investing in India um, and you make a lot of money investing in, in Asia. And um, so each one of our funds, uh, whether it's real estate, um, transition, infrastructure, private equity, is looking at the markets and, and we tend to move our capital to where the opportunities come about. Uh, Bruce, that, that fits into the one of the macro uh, drivers of the success of Brookfield, which you've been instrumental in, uh, is the focus on raising significant institutional capital and that fundraising prowess, you know, you now typically have uh, regular uh, capital raises that are 10, 15 billion and higher. Um, with that kind of insight, where do you see uh, the largest alternative managers in investing? Where are the capital flows coming from and where are they going? What what changes are in, in place in, in, in uh in the whole capital flow uh, process uh, that, that you all are seeing given the, the magnitude of market share you have in the space? We raise uh, 50, 75, 100 billion of uh, capital a year in various um, sources. Our, uh, I'd say our success over the years has been trying to be forward looking on how do we um, create access for ourselves to the um, to more capital 
than others have. And the advantage with more capital than others have is that there are transactions that we can do that nobody else can do. So it limits competition. Uh, and just to use an example, if there's a $100 million uh, transaction in infrastructure, there might be 20 people that can bid for it. Uh, if it's 10 billion, there's two. And um, so our, our view was limit the amount of competition um, by ensuring that. And so we've continued to build our resources. One of the reasons we're uh, offering the same products that we manage for institutional investors now into wealth systems in the United States, because there's a huge untapped um, amount of wealth in the United States. And all we're doing is just repackaging the products that we've learned to invest for institutions into wealth. And, um, and that'll continue to grow as, as you and, and all your uh, uh, people at Rockefeller know, private wealth has a small amount of alternatives in their, um, uh, in their investment categories. And, uh, and that, th these are great investments to base load portfolios and therefore that's gonna to continue to increase um, over time. So our view is, uh, look, it's a very, we're a large fundraiser. Uh, we're one of the largest in alternatives, but this is very small compared to the global capital flows. Um, and it can continue to increase uh, a lot over, uh, over time. Well, you're spot on, as you know, uh, at Rockefeller uh, Capital Management, we have uh, invested a significant amount in building a team that does diligence on alternative uh, uh, options. Uh, we have an increasing percentage of client assets that are going into alternatives, and our private wealth teams uh, are, uh, uh, you know, increasingly focused on the the options that that firms like Brookfield bring uh, to their clients. So this is a secular trend in our eyes. You know, high net worth clients, which is the heart of our business, have the ability to invest through the cycle. Uh, and and to have a higher percentage of their assets in alternative assets. Uh, and we're looking for the best managers in the world to bring to them. So uh, you're you're hundred percent right. That's a major trend across family offices and and um, the the private wealth space with a, a lot of potential incremental assets that will 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 flow into alternative assets. Um, speaking of of that uh, in a slight shift, uh, Bruce, but you announced, uh, uh, on Thursday uh, that the significant change uh, at Brookfield uh, that you're going to, to uh, spin um, an entity dedicated specifically to alternative the alternative asset management business. You're going to uh, spin, I believe, 25% uh, to the public, uh, and then um, Brookfield will continue to hold the 75%. Can you talk a little bit about the drivers behind that and uh, 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 you know, what caused you to make that decision and how that's going to work going forward relative to the larger Brookfield business that will continue to exist? Yeah, so Greg, the, uh, our, uh, I, I try to put it this way, the overall organization of Brookfield has evolved in the last 30 years to where we've retained a lot of the capital that we have in the business. And therefore, we have two things today. We have uh, $75 billion of investments ourselves that we invest beside our clients. And we started with a very small amount, and today that's $75 billion of retained capital um, for our own account. But then we have an asset management business that we manage um, uh, funds for other people. The two of those together 
um, are very additive, but when people look at them, um, they they sometimes it's time consuming for them to, if they want to buy an asset manager, um, they get confused by what we're investing our 75 billion into. If they want to buy 75 billion, they get distracted by the asset manager. So for for those that have been with us a long time, probably what we're going to do is they'll just keep their shares of the corporation and stay the way they were. But we're going to separately list the asset management business and distribute 25% of it to our shareholders. Um, and uh, by doing so, there will be a pure play entity that will manage um, all of our assets and it will focus our management teams on exactly what they should be doing, which is delivering for our clients. Um, but the uh, parent corporation will still own 75% of it. So we'll still be investing along beside them and doing all the things that we do today um, to build the business. Uh, and we just decided it was the right time to separate, to focus. And what it allows us also to do is to possibly have a security as we continue to grow the business globally to um, utilize in transactions if we uh, if we ever want to um, do them. So it, it just gives us greater optionality. Yeah, and and the the this the uh, standalone asset management entity now will be uh, literally among the, the handful of biggest uh, uh, alternative managers in, in the world, right? I mean, the competitors get into the maybe Blackstone and some like that, but but not many, right? Yeah, this is look our uh, the asset management business. We uh, we just to help our shareholders uh, estimated the value of it to be 80 billion based on the um, the mathematics. So uh, that's excluding the 75 billion of capital we have. The managers uh, worth 80 billion. So we're going to distribute 20 billion approximately uh, of shares to our um, shareholders on a tax free basis. So uh, we're we're quite excited about that. You know, it sounds exciting and, and and extremely logical given the the dedicated focus then of that entity in alternative asset management investment and then the the capital that you built up over all these years those percentages i started with uh, one one can understand those percentages when you get to 75 billion of of capital from where you started uh, 20 years ago uh, you mentioned bruce uh, the possibility of uh, of an acquisition currency you have done completed some some uh, large acquisitions that have been enormously successful and accretive to Brookfield, including Oak Tree uh, Capital Management, Howard Marks and team uh, who are uh, distressed investors of of, uh, of some uh, great success over many years. Um, uh, how has that gone? Uh, the the acquisition side, uh, I think that's a little bit more recent for you. And uh, sounds like my question you you started to answer. Uh, you're, you're focused on doing potentially more of that as a fill-in in, in places you want to be going forward. Look, uh, three years ago, three and a half years ago, we um, approached uh, Howard Marks, Bruce Karsh, and the Oak Tree team, and uh, we partnered with them. Uh, and I specifically used the word partner because they kept their shares in the business. We bought the public out. Uh, today we own 65%, they own 35%, and we are true partners uh, in this business. In fact, Howard and his team, and uh, Howard specifically, still control the business, and we are their partner, and we they run a, they run their own distressed business 
Um, uh, we don't mix our investing with theirs, but we cooperate on many things. Um, we help them with clients and fundraising and other stuff. And one of the things we did do was we put together a um, what's called Brookfield Oak Tree Well Solutions to uh, deliver products to the well system for both Oak Tree and uh, and Brookfield. So it's been a uh, it's been a uh, phenomenal three and a half years. Uh, I, I would say it this way: uh, when we entered into it, we were um, we thought it would be good but I think we structured it right and um, they've been an excellent partner to have. So um, uh, we're, we're thrilled with the relationship and what it added to overall Brookfield is that it added a very large scale credit business, which we didn't have before. And for our institutional clients, that was important to have the scale of the products because then they can put scale amounts of money into um, into this, these funds, and uh, and so far it's been really great. And and you mentioned Bruce is is the uh, there's a wealth management uh, uh, vehicle to reach uh, uh, retail investors uh, that's embedded in um, Oak Tree for both Oak Tree and, and and Brookfield. How's that working? No, we actually we actually had three. We had two uh, marketing groups. Uh, for wealth and they had one and we took all three groups combined them into a new group which is about uh, 200 people and it's called uh, Brookfield Oak Tree Wealth and so it's owned by the two of us together in fact so we're partners with them in this business and it markets to all retail wealth systems uh, uh, in the world it markets all the products of both Oak Tree and Brookfield and um, I guess what we're what we're trying to accomplish here is uh, our systems to be able to uh, you can have different investment organizations like in Brookfield we have different sleeves of investments for different things but if we can bring commonality to um, delivery of uh, products to clients looking after them and all of the best in class services we have something then special to offer in the marketplace and uh, increasingly that's going to be important and only the big groups can offer that and um, so the, the two of us together uh, have that as a joint venture. Uh, very, very smart uh, and, and uh, I know a significant uh, growth area for you. Bruce, do you think that uh, this move of um, high net worth and ultra high net worth uh, investors, individuals and families into uh, a greater percentage of their assets being in alternatives. Uh, over time, will Brookfield Asset Management and then Brookfield, the, the parent, uh, will the mix of investors start to shift to a a, uh, a, a measurable and high percentage being uh, in the high net worth and ultra high net worth category? Is that what you see over the next five, 10 years? Look, I think uh, the, the institutional money around the world is enormous. Like some of these are Many of the funds we deal with are 500 uh, billion to a trillion dollar pools of money. They keep growing. They need product. So I don't think that's going to slow down. But increasingly, the percentages we have from wealth are going to get bigger and bigger because look, these are these are the ideal products for investors to have in their personal account. They compound over long periods of time. They have low volatility. They earn reasonable returns. Uh, look, the, the lowest thing we offer earns uh, seven or eight percent return, and the highest is twenty-five. So, 
these are uh, low vol, good returning assets, and they're perfect for they're perfect for institutional investors, but they're perfect for private wealth. And so I think increasingly that's going to the, the shift of private wealth is going to be into the, into private assets. And uh, as a result of that, the percentages we have will increase significantly. Now today it's. 4% and will it go to 24? Possibly. I don't think it'll be 50. Um, it's just because, and that's only because of the scale of institutional money is so large, but it's going to be very, very meaningful. And that's why we've dedicated um, significant resources to this and we'll increasingly going, go do it going forward. Yeah. I mean, given the size of, uh, of Brookfield, both the, what will be the independent asset manager business and then uh, the, the rest of the business, uh, if it goes from four to 24, we're talking about uh, a large uh, amount of assets. Um, so uh, Bruce, on, on the, it sounds like uh, uh, Oak Tree has gone uh, tremendously well uh, uh, in, in every respect for you. Uh, again, this is uh, something probably uh, to get used to with Brookfield, which has created some of those returns, but alignment of interest with Howard and his partners continuing to have a significant ownership and sounding like they're truly partners with you. Um, are there other areas uh, from a, a, uh, an inorganic standpoint that you're particularly focused on, uh, you know, on the acquisition side? And I'm sure you get asked this all the time and it, you know, there may be things that you, you don't want to get into, but uh, are there, you know, because as you said, that got you into credit. You know, uh, you've got credit, infrastructure, real estate. There's some, you know, you're major scale player in, in a lot of the biggest asset categories. But are there things that uh, that you could see as a natural extension that you might look inorganically for? Look, our uh, the way I would start in, uh, in the answer is that our system, by building out uh, what I just described in wealth, and by perfecting that, we will have one of the three to five businesses in the world because we, we, we're we putting enormous capital and money to work to build it out. And uh, by having one of those uh, and be, by having our distribution in institutional clients, um, we can offer partners something that they can't get anywhere else. And as a result of that, I think over time, there will be other businesses in the asset management area that we can bolt into the our entity to be able to grow it, um, which we otherwise wouldn't have been able to do. And um, when we did the only the only thing I wished uh, we hadn't have had to do when we uh, acquired 63% of Oak Tree was that we issued shares to be able to get the transaction done. We issued shares of Brookfield Asset Management, the parent company. Um, because we had to buy, we were buying apples and we had to offer oranges as a trade. Um, once we have this entity out in the marketplace and it's just an asset manager, it will give us a, a security to be able to offer if we so choose. And, um, and uh, I think there will be opportunities over the next 20 years to do that. It's great. I mean, uh, another competitive advantage. I mean, there are a lot of things that are unique about Brookfield, the scale, the track record. Uh, but having a currency focused just on the space uh, will be, uh, you know, should be a, a, another major source of competitive advantage. Frankly, for the Oak Tree people, though, they, they got the diversified uh, Brookfield, uh, you know, formally. So I'm sure they, they were they were happy with the, the way you structured that. But I think it's smart uh, moving forward with the, the way that you're doing it. 
Um, Bruce, uh, uh, and I, I know you, uh, starting with your bio, you spend less time on, on Bruce Flat, but um, you've been CEO for 20 years now. So the average run for uh, most CEOs, I believe, is in the six to seven year category. Uh, so this is one of the longest and most successful tenures for any CEO in any industry. Um, during that time, while you've created the returns that we I talked about earlier and, and positioned Brookfield where it is, um, what changes in the competitive and macro landscape have surprised you the most? Because the reality is, for people standing and looking, you know, standing back and looking at it, I, I just, you know, I've given the numbers and it's been 20 years. It's been quite a run, but nonetheless, there still have to be things in the world that you've seen along the way, along that journey that surprised you, maybe good and bad. So anything that uh, you talk about over that 20 year period that um, uh, that fit into the, boy, I didn't expect that to happen, but it worked for you, or I didn't expect that to happen and it was a challenge. Yeah, look, I uh, I would say the uh, most interesting one uh, that I don't think I quite understood um, when I started into business uh, is that there is a crisis every year. And I don't know what whether it's every year, every second year, every third year, but there's always a crisis and it's always the worst. When you're in it, this right now, I, everyone on this call is saying this is the worst thing. Interest rates are going up. There's the inflation is coming, blah, blah, blah. Remember two years ago, deflation was coming, interest rates were going to negative, you name it, it was going to be something else. The only thing I would say I've learned is that um, over time, compounding wealth is about growing, buying great businesses, great assets, great things with great people and sticking with it. And um, do not get distracted by all of the things that happen every day. And uh, and I would just say that our, I think our reasonable success has been really because we focused on the long-term and the industrial logic of um, the things we were doing. And uh, we're spinning our asset manager out, as we just talked about, not because we want to create value tomorrow morning. Yes, maybe it will. Uh, in the stock, but that isn't why we're doing it. We're doing it because we're going to have a security that we can offer to somebody someday, if we want to, that will create enormous value for this business. And um, so I would just say that, Rick, that, that's my uh, my take on 30 years of, uh, of doing what we've been doing. I, I think that's fantastic, I have to say, and I'm pleased that so many of my colleagues are hearing it because uh, I have to. I, I agree with you, and I I I hadn't thought of that. Uh, if somebody asked me that question, I would not have given the answer because uh, I, I hadn't thought of it. But the reality is now, because I, I started in a similar time frame as you, I was at Merrill in 1992, um, and when you look back on it, it, it's constantly something. And by the way, every time it's occurring, it's as you said, advertised as. Can you believe this is occurring? I mean, remember in 1998 we had the 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 Russian and, and hedge fund crisis and long term capital. Uh, and then you have September 11th, and then you have uh, the credit crisis, and and it, it is re relentlessly something. Uh, and uh, you know the focus on here's the strategy, and this is what we're doing, and here's how we're adding value for our shareholders, for our team, and most importantly for our clients. 
And Greg, you, you just Greg, you just mentioned the things that happened in the United States. Exactly. The, the Asian financial crisis, Brazil, the real collapse, uh, India. Like you could go through uh, war, the war in this place, that place, and the other place. The fact is, there is an amazing change that goes on in the world. And if you just keep at it with great things and great people, it works out. And um, so that's anyway, that I, I agree with you 100 percent. Spot on. Uh, so, Bruce, um, w one thing related to that, uh, uh, having said all that, not disagreeing, just saying um, one thing that, that I subscribe to as well uh, after uh, you know watching more recent years, that the, the, the globalization has brought the world closer together uh, for uh, good in a lot of ways, but you know, challenging ways as well as we're seeing in Ukraine. Um, and technologies tied everything together and brought um, you know, a speed of change that is different than earlier in our careers. So what do you think about the next 20 years, given all the change that's occurred that you continue to stay focused on throughout? Uh, you know, over the next 20 years, what changes do you foresee that um, that will impact Brookfield and all of us? Uh, and, you know, and, and maybe the premise of my question, do you agree that there's an accelerating pace of change driven by technology? Yes, and I I, uh, I, I would just mention a couple of things. I think technology uh, 20 years ago was um, in its early stages. Today, it's more mature and therefore technology businesses for value, real asset, cash flow investors uh, is real. And for the first time ever, uh, we're now seeing those businesses, uh, valuations coming down. And, and in fact, we're super excited about some of these companies being now offered at reasonable valuations in the marketplace. And um, so I think increasingly, uh, 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 the these businesses are becoming real and 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 it will um, become more of those companies will become real over time and 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 soon we will not say you're investing in technology it will just they are just going to become the fabric of the world of uh, the economy and integrated into everything that we do so um, technology investing is going to go away as an asset class is just going to become part of private equity or whatever you want to call it. So uh, I think that's, um, you know, probably the one thing that is going to happen over the next period of time that I think is, is quite exciting for the whole world because there's a lot of great, great things going on in that uh, space. That's another uh, great insight. Uh, I agree with you. I think it's, it's it, technology is so in integrated into the fabric of everything that it's no longer its own category. Uh, Bruce, one final question. I promise you we would end on time as we always do. Uh, advice to young people today uh, and how has that changed over the course of your career? You know, I tend not to give a lot of advice out. Uh, I, I can only say that um, sticking with it is probably the most important thing uh, people can do, whether it's called compounding of interest, compounding of business knowledge, compounding of returns, compounding of wealth. Um, the compounding effects of, of everything you do are really important. And, and if you quit halfway through, you got to start all over again. So I, I'd say that's probably the most important thing that we I have observed over the years. Well, I think it's great advice. Uh, well, uh, Bruce, this was fantastic. Uh, and the uh, what you've accomplished at Brookfield is uh, is really uh, phenomenal. 
uh, and that was a tour de force across uh, all the different issues in our world. So many thanks for you being here. I did tell you I would end with the quotation, as uh, all of the Rockefeller people know, I like to do. Uh, so many thanks to uh, to Bruce Flat for a tremendous uh, interview. Uh, we hope everybody enjoyed it uh, and found it as insightful as I did. Uh, you know, Bruce, when I look at uh, where you started uh, and what you've accomplished, it reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Nelson Mandela, who says it, uh, quote, always seems impossible until it is done. Uh, the notion that you would be where you are today at Brookfield spinning this asset management company with the value creation that occurred uh, with the numbers I talked about along the way uh, uh, in 2002, uh, you, you would have had much less company uh, in, in the concept that that was going to happen. So uh, uh, bravo. Uh, thanks for being here today. I wish you the best uh, moving forward. Uh, thank you to our uh, clients, colleagues, uh, and friends of Rockefeller for being here. Um, and uh, all the best for the weekend. And Bruce, thanks uh, again for being here.